That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hello, friends. It's Matthew Zachary once more. Thank you for joining us today on this third and final installment of the BCSM podcast crossover right here on Out of Patience. Enjoy the show. This episode of the BCSM podcast was made possible with support from Daiichi Sankyo and Sijen. Welcome back to the final episode of the BCSM podcast series. Last time, we heard from four breast cancer advocates on how they utilize BCSM to connect with patients and researchers all around the world. In this episode, we're going to meet May McCarmo, president and CEO of the Tiger Lily Foundation, and learn about her journey and her mission to end disparities for young breast cancer patients of color. At an early age, I got a firsthand look at what it was like to serve people and what compassion looked like. That is May McCarmo, president and CEO of the Tiger Lily Foundation. Mema was born in Liberia, West Africa. Her mother was a nurse who ran the Liberian Nurses Association, training laywomen from different tribes to become nurses. When she went to the hospital to do rounds with doctors, I would go with her and walk down the halls with her and literally watch her sit with patients and help them. In Liberia, the healthcare system was pretty much non-existent. Literally, you saw wealth exist next to extreme poverty. So we would go to buy groceries and you get out of the car and the people that are be sitting on the sidewalk, missing limbs or eyes or, you know, in wheelchairs that were broken, begging for money. And it just struck me at a young age, you know, that that was wrong. Looking back, I see where I may have gotten some of my tendency to serve from. Mama's mother also taught her about self-care. At just 13 years old, Mama's mother sat her down and explained the importance of breast self-exams, about how knowing her body could save her life. I was mortified. But she talked about my body changing and knowing my breasts would be important because as a girl matured, her breasts would change in different ways and to look for if there was a lump or a discharge or anything different, you know, to, to let her know. In 2006, at 31 years old, Mema was taking a shower when she felt a lump in her breast. My whole world stopped. And I called her and said, I found something in my breast and I'm, I'm nervous. And she said, well, I told you what to do. Call the doctor, call your OBGYN, make an appointment, and then figure out what's next. Thanks to her mother's advice, Mema had already established a strong relationship with an OBGYN that she could trust. She didn't ignore me. She said, come in and we'll look at it. I really thought I'd go in there and see her. And then she would say, go home and it's no big deal. She said, well, I'm, I'm concerned about this lump. As you are, it's, it feels, you know, suspect. So do you want to get a mammogram? Mama's OBGYN prescribed a mammogram. At this time, this was rare for women in their early 30s. She said that it wasn't cancer, that I was too young to have breast cancer. That, in fact, the lump that I saw that was on the mammogram was a cyst. 
and I should come back. You know, if I was really, really, really concerned in six months to a year or better yet, close to 40 years old. But Mama knew her body and felt that something wasn't right. And I was leaving her office, looking around there, all these, you know, plaques and stuff like that and her degrees and pictures. And a part of me thought, am I, am I wrong here because I feel off? I mean, she's a doctor and I'm just me. And then the other part of me said, no, you know your body better than anybody else. You know this is not normal. But me being me, I kept persisting and kept harassing them and calling. And so finally I went in to see her and I got the biopsy that I've been wanting to get. And she called the next day to tell me that I had stage 2B, triple negative breast cancer. I was stunned because what came to mind for me was that I had done all the right things. I had eaten healthy, exercise. I didn't smoke. I had no history in my family. I had done my breast examinations. I had gone to see my doctor. I had asked for a screening and seen a surgeon. So I had done more than enough things that I was supposed to have been doing per the standard of care at my age. And yet, if I hadn't pushed for the biopsy, I, w- I would have been diagnosed at a later stage and I, I could have died. Mama was treated with a lumpectomy, chemotherapy, and radiation. And just like that, all of a sudden, she was tossed into a world where she had to make decisions about her health on her own. As I lay in bed, going through the whole journey of treatment and throwing up and losing my hair and nausea and diarrhea and headaches and all of that, losing friends and relationships, I thought about how many other women who were my age would not have had a mom talking to them about breast self-examinations. I thought about how many girls wouldn't have been doing their breast self-examinations. I thought how many would have found a lump because of different reasons would not have followed through because they were told at the time women got breast cancer at 40, so they would never have followed through with getting screened. How many women who are younger would not have had a physician that was a friend or that a trusted provider partner? And how many of them wouldn't have had a provider that would have said, get a mammogram and see a surgeon? Or, and how many would go get a mammogram and be turned away because they were too young and didn't, they were underinsured or, or not insured at all? And how many yet would go to see the surgeon who would then tell them, I'm one of the best in the area. You're too young to have breast cancer or come back in six months or when you're 40 and they would have died. According to the American Cancer Society, Breast cancer death rates are about 40% higher in black women compared to white women. Black women are also twice as likely as women of any other racial or ethnic group in the U.S. to be diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer. Breast cancer incidence rates are also higher among black women under 45. And so I felt a sense of responsibility that I couldn't go back to my life as it was before. One day I was again in the shower crying, bald, and just terrified. I made a promise to God that if I survived, I would give my, my life and my time to make a difference in the world for women who are younger in the breast cancer space. And that's when I began Tiger Lily Foundation. The Tiger Lily Foundation is a global organization that works to educate, advocate for, and empower young women of all backgrounds through their breast cancer journey. Many of the foundation's programs incorporate holistic health, wellness, and prevention. Mama's new purpose was to end the challenges around young black women who are becoming metastatic and women who are facing barriers because of their skin color. The challenge now was where to go with it. 
Mema began to approach funders, but was often dismissed. People I would talk to would say that your vision's too big. People are already doing this work and there's no need for you to do all this. And I would get dismissed. People wouldn't fund me. And then I began to get irritated and and angry and annoyed (laughs) because I knew that whenever I went to speak someplace at a a health fair or, you know, people would ask me to speak on the Hill or in the media, I never would see women who look like me. A Black woman who was young and single parenting and in that space, in that room with policymakers, in that room with healthcare providers, in the room with people who were running national and global healthcare systems. And so I kept pushing myself into different rooms. And when I get into the room, I'd be like, why does no one look like me here? And some people were making these decisions about patients. They were making these choices about patients and creating these systems, but they didn't have patients in the room. And so I thought, how could you create a solution for somebody when they're not in the room with you discussing where they're coming from? And how can you solve a problem that you don't understand the problem's root and where it's from? You don't understand our culture and our background and our mistrust issues and things that we face as barriers and the hurts and pains and the just being in our skin and being a patient. Mema continued to speak out about the lack of representation. She helped pass laws and work with policymakers. She traveled all over the U.S. to speak at events, all the while working a full-time job and taking care of her young daughter. I felt like, how come all the other charities that are white-led are getting funding and getting support and getting all this exposure? Those were things that really began opening my eyes in terms of, if our system is not racist, why is it that I'm doing the work that they're doing, even more powerful work, but yet getting a fraction of the level of support? That's when I began to see the disparities and why they exist, because they come from the top down. The sheer amount of disparity that Mamet continued to see only further propelled her advocacy. In 2018, she attended the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. The conference brings together clinicians, researchers, and advocates from across the country to discuss the latest breast cancer research. It was there that Mema met with funders from the industry to talk about the need for clinical trial diversity. Mema saw this as an opportunity to explain the importance of educating patients of color about disparities in healthcare. I have been, you know, traveling the country, meeting with patients of color, um, doing like mini listening summits, asking questions, doing surveys. And I sat there with many of our partners in industry and I pitched them this, this deck about where the barriers were, why they existed and why it was important that we fix them now. And if something happened that was catastrophic, like, like things would get worse. I asked them would they invest in this plan I had to really work to end barriers to care for Black women. And I really, I mapped the plan out in terms of multimedia, in terms of barriers and access and need to, you know, eliminate barriers to care. And I also mapped out the importance of clinical trial um, education and and diversity, making trials um, decentralized and so forth. And I think I may have had 10 partners in that room. (laughs) And of the 10, I think only three took me seriously. This is in 2018. And I I left the meeting very unsure of my next step. I knew what I felt. I knew what I knew for my population. I knew what they needed. But having, you know, these people kind of like not taking me seriously really bothered me. And I thought if they are at the top echelon of this work and don't think it's important, maybe what I'm doing is not is not really important. But then I had three of the partners pull me aside afterwards separately and said, you know, they looked around the room and they saw what I put out there. And they knew the importance of the work and they would invest in me, whether or not anybody else would. And I felt a sense of hope. And so I began to start the work. 
And then the next year, we brought women of color to San Antonio Breast. For the first time in, the, in I think, the 40-plus year history of the conference, they, they never had that number, large number of Black women in the room. The sheer turnout for the 2019 San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium was way more than she could have ever hoped for. People were standing up. There was no space to sit. It was people were just coming in off the, like, literally off the street. I've been doing this work for almost like 13 years at the time, or 12 years, and saying the same things and pushing this thing up the hill. And for the first time, I was being validated that I wasn't crazy, that people of color needed to be put at the table and listened to and, and asked questions of, and they were the expert in their field versus the scientists or doctors and industry partners. There were patients there for the first time meeting a scientist, meeting another black woman that had breast cancer, or meeting a black person who was metastatic like them, or meeting a black leader of a nonprofit who was nas- that was national and seeing what was possible. And they were having conversations that they never had before, people they couldn't talk to before. Like it was this massive, like in this nirvana of like a new space that was never had existed. And then we had patients going to the poster sessions, learning about the science of breast cancer, asking questions of scientists, debating, giving the ideas. It was just a magical time. So I think that was one of the things that really impacted me to see that the barriers that were in place for even myself and to push for these women and bring them to the table. That was when it began to gel and I began to know that in my gut, like, okay, my gut's not wrong. I'm on the right track. Mema founded the Tiger Lily Foundation in June of 2006, and almost a year later, Twitter rose to popularity. When I got on Twitter, it was like a whole new world. Because, you know, I'm a talker. I can't answer a question in less than five minutes. So I'm like, how am I going to type a sentence in 140 characters, is it? But I began to realize the potential. People are on Twitter who are, you know, politicians, policymakers, you know, people in the healthcare space. And I saw a whole new world open up before me because I'm about getting shit done. My goal was to figure out a platform that fit me, that could amplify my voice and get my voice out there to a large number of people. And I began just talking and expressing my feelings and, and sharing who I was on Twitter and not just being a cancer survivor, but just being a person, right? I mean, being me and being different. And, um, at some point I found BCSM and I thought, wow, these women are badass. Like they've kind of began their own shit right here. It's like super cool. They didn't censor it. So to my earlier point, people would say whatever they wanted. They were, they were inspiring. They were pissed off. They were sharing disease information. They were building a network, but you knew that wherever you were in the world, you can get on your freaking phone at, at eight o'clock and express yourself until your heart's content. And people would be listening to you and sharing and, and so forth. You know, I would get involved sometimes and I would, I would chat. I got to know Alicia and I, I love what she built and, and she and Deanna and Jody, and it was just magical. BCSM is an online community that welcomes anyone affected by breast cancer. But Mema found that there weren't many spaces for black women to engage. So she began to build the online community that she felt was missing. And so as I built my social media platforms and, you know, social media is about really learning what your voice is and learning your personality and how to express yourself as you are in each space and being your authentic self. And I feel like when I began to show the world who I was, my social media kind of blew up. Mema reached out to Alicia in person. We had our San Antonio breast cancer event in 2019. It took the woman of color to the, the symposium. You know, I reached out to Alicia and I said, I love what you're doing and I love to collaborate. I think that there's a space to really focus on disparities within BCSM. And she said, I'm on it. I love it. Let's do it. And she was so generous to give me a platform, she and Deanna, to share about the San Antonio Breast event we're having, the fireside chat we're having, and talk about that. 
it was so powerful seeing that we were talking about disparities in a way that was raw. It wasn't about, you know, oh, people don't want to listen to us. It was about we're pissed off. Here are the barriers. Women of color are dying at 40% higher death rates. They have higher recurrences. They're not getting access to care. And here's how we can fix the problem. So we're talking about things in a raw fashion, the truth, the statistics, the facts, and then what we wanted to change in this space. Because it's all about not just complaining, but about transformation of systems, people, and ideas. It was really powerful going to the event, having us on BCSM that week before. I had an idea. I thought, you know, we need to get these patients on, on this platform. Because when I looked around, there were more patients who were non-Black on the platform, talking with doctors and scientists and policymakers. And I thought, again, this is a barrier that Black women aren't on this platform to meet researchers that could really impact them getting involved in trials or treatments and helping to eliminate the barriers that were there for people who are Black in the healthcare system. So BCSM and Tiger Lily teamed up to train the patients to get on Twitter. Some of them had never been on Twitter before. They were terrified. But they got on and we had a Twitter chat at the event. What was powerful is the explosion of I would say black breast cancer, social media. So for the first time, these women were on social media. There were tons of them and they got their friends on and we were talking about disparities, talking about barriers, talking about solutions. And people could hear the rawness of where they were living and where they were from and their experiences in firsthand on the same global digital stage as our partisan pharma. And so I think that's when we really saw the power of BCSM partnered with Tiger Lily and what we could do when it came to disparities. Mema has been one of the most proactive advocates for women of color affected by breast cancer. Ever since her diagnosis, she's been dedicating her entire life to making sure women have the support they need through this life-changing experience called breast cancer. My hope is to impact people who are living right now so they can make a difference in the future. I really believe in living legacy, not waiting till people are dead to make a difference. My goal is to really amplify the voices of Black women and to work to end barriers for black and brown people in this lifetime. My goal is to make a difference that's so radical that we will change the status quo for people who are underserved and eliminate barriers that they're facing, that it won't be a thing that will come in the future. So the legacy I want to leave is that we won't have to hear these words barriers, you know, in the next hundred years. We won't have to hear the words health disparities in, in the next, you know, in hundred years. We won't have to hear the words lack of representation in the next whatever amount of years. And so the legacy I want to leave is one of healing, not one of fixing the problem I want to be fixed already. I really want to see that we have eradicated all these barriers, that people are seen as human beings, not as by their skin color, and that you won't die because of where you live. Your zip code won't determine your lifestyle or lifespan, and that being black shouldn't determine your right to live or die. So those are things I want to see, but most importantly, it's like I really want to be able to have healthcare focus on what healthcare is meant to focus on, which is healing and not hurting people and not having people not be included because of their color, their skin in certain ways. So I hope that this work ends with us, this need to fix the problem ends with us and that the next generation thinking about healing and, and being whole and about living a full life that we all deserve to have. For Mema, it is critical to ensure that marginalized people get the resources that they need. You know, I always say that whether you're acting or enacting, if your behavior is enabling a systemic brokenness that allows people to die, then you have to examine that and, and change it. 
Never say, I can't do this, or I don't know what to do. Ask yourself, what am I doing or not doing? And I say that one of the first questions, second questions to ask yourself is, is this one. What are your own, you know, biases that, that you may think are things that, that are normal for you or status quo? Two of my closest friends, Christine and Julia, they were very instrumental in my work with disparities. When I began the work, you know, this work requires people on two sides. It requires the Black people and it requires our white allies. And Christine and Julia and I are good friends. And they began to tell people within the healthcare system that would ignore me or Tiger Lily or would ignore Black patient voices that they wouldn't, they would say we wouldn't be part of your panel or whatever, or your, your board if you won't allow a Black woman to be a part of this. As white women, they looked at their own biases and privilege, right? And they said, if we have privilege, we have to use that privilege for power. So what is your privilege and how can it be used for power is what I would say to ask yourself as well. And then looking at that privilege and that power you have as a white person, how can that be leveraged to help to end barriers for care for people who are black and brown? If you are a black patient, you are in a position to share your story with those who don't understand what you're facing and why making a difference can change your life or save your life. So tell that damn story and tell it often and loudly, but tell it in a way that can work to change barriers and end barriers. I'm a fan of telling my story as it is and tying it to a measurable solution. So I'm, I believe in smart metrics. So whatever I do is going towards specific, measurable, um, actionable, you know, changes. But if you are just a person in the world, you know, white or black and wanting to know how you can make a difference, I would say you can think about where barriers are existing in this world in terms of healthcare. And how can you in your personal life, in your business life, in your spiritual life, in any aspect, make a difference to end a barrier? I hear a lot of talk about, you know, there's too much to do. There's much work to be done. And the problem's too big and you can't boil the ocean. But if we each picked one thing to do and made that thing our thing, and you began to put that one thing in the world, it's amazing what can happen when that one thing begins to butterfly and become a flower and expand. And so don't ever underestimate the power of the ripple effect of the, the butterfly effect and how your voice can change the people who are around you, who are your loved ones, your co-workers, and how you can make that difference. And so use your voice, take action. Um, don't wait and don't look at who's doing it or who's not doing the work. It's really about us and about you making a difference in the world and starting now. Over the course of this series, we've covered many resources from BCSM, GRASP, and Tiger Lily, just to name a few. These efforts were started by women from all different walks of life, different backgrounds, different drives, different focuses, different motivations, but all with the same end goal. Let's make breast cancer suck less together. With the power of social media, people are rising up to advocate for their unique experiences and diagnoses. There are various types of rare breast cancers like inflammatory breast cancer and male breast cancer that are finding community online. Healthcare as we know it is changing for the better as our voices as advocates grow louder and louder together. If you take anything away from these women's stories, it's that when you feel that you're advocating for yourself but not being heard, know that you are not alone that you can create a space where you and people like you can and will feel heard. We all have a voice. Where will yours take you?
Thank you for listening to the BCSM podcast. This has been a production of Offscript Media. If you like the series, be sure to subscribe, leave a rating, a review, share on social media, and please tell your community to check it out. Your voice matters, and we'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback about this series. So call us at 855-AUDIO-66, that's 855-283-4666, and leave us a good old-fashioned voicemail with your comments. We can't wait to hear from you. And don't forget to join the BCSM Weekly Tweet Chat live every Monday at 9 p.m. Eastern on Twitter. The BCSM Podcast is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producers are Brianna Seely and me, Matthew Zachary. Our contributing producers are Alicia Staley and Dr. Deanna Atai. Andrew McDowell is our senior producer. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Brianna Seely. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com. No